number of talks about individual psalms or groups of psalms. Uh, except for next week when we have a missionary coming to talk about his work in Mexico. Now, Psalms has got more than twice as many chapters as the longest book in the Bible, but Psalms is only the third longest book on word count. There's 150 Psalms, and a lot of them are quite short compared with the chapters in Jeremiah and Genesis, which are the two longest books in the Bible. So what is this book of Psalms? The word Psalms itself comes from a Greek word meaning stringed instruments, but then it came to mean a collection of songs. And simply put, our book of Psalms is the hymn book of the Jews in Old Testament times, and it probably still is, because I'm not sure if they've got a lot of new ones to put with it. And like most hymn books, it's a collection based on earlier collections. The division into five books is uh, based on what some of those earlier collections were. These are the five books, Psalms 1 to 41, or book 1, then 42 to 72, book 2, 73 to 89, book 3, 90 to 106, book 4, and 107 to 150, book 5. So you see there's different numbers in each one, and um, there's you can't say that Book one consists of this and book two consists of that because there are psalms of different types in all of those um, different books. Many of the psalms have an ascription at the top, it might say, of David or a psalm of Asaph or a masculine of the sons of Korah or something like that. But those titles aren't really original and they may not always mean that Asaph in particular wrote it or that David in particular wrote it. There's also quite a lot of um, strange musical terms. A miktam, a masculine, or a shigoyon. And basically none of the experts knows what these terms mean. It might seem strange that the, the Jews have lost uh, the meaning of these terms, but they, they have. And even the word selah, uh, which occurs 71 times, it's a bit of a mystery. A lot of the Bibles now um, put interlude instead of the word selah and it's possible that it was meant to be a little instrumental fill-in in between some of the singing but uh, nobody's really certain about that. Some of the historical notes are also not original so they're not part of what we consider inspired but they can be helpful. They indicate the events that led to a psalm and in the top of Psalm 51, for example, it says it's a psalm of David when the prophet Nathan came to him after he had committed adultery with Bathsheba. Well, the psalm consists of David crying out to God for forgiveness for his sin. So it's quite likely a true and helpful uh, historical detail. Similarly, Psalm 3 is headed a psalm of David when he fled from his son Absalom. I forgot to put the mic on, didn't I? Were you doing all right? It's all right. Sorry about that, people. In this psalm, Psalm 3, David starts out by mentioning his enemies and then he comforts himself with his faith and he urges God to act on his behalf. Well, what are the psalms for? Well, one of the commentators, A.A. A. Anderson, has a good definition of the purpose of the psalms. 
He says they were primarily intended as vehicles to convey the feelings and attitude of any worshipper in a similar situation to that experienced by the writer. And you find as you read through the Psalms that the writers are talking about a huge range of feelings and experiences. Sometimes they're praising God almost ecstatically and other times they're in the depths of despair because God seems to have abandoned them. And we find the full range of human experience in the Psalms and there's great variety in them. And whatever you're going through, there will be a Psalm that's somehow relevant to your situation. If you look at the back of good hymn books, there's an index which has all the songs divided into subject categories. There'll be headings like Praise to God, Salvation, The Christian Life, Easter and Christmas and things like that. Some songs are very appropriate in one context and not at all in another. The book of Psalms is like that, but it doesn't come with an index. But lots of commentators have noticed that there are several different types of Psalms, and they've grouped them together accordingly. It's a little bit difficult because not many of the Psalms fits one category perfectly, and there's often elements of the different types in the same Psalm. One of the biggest differences between Psalms and our hymn books is that about one-third of all the psalms in the 150 can be categorised as laments. The main ingredient in a lament is bemoaning the state of affairs that the psalmist finds himself in. It could be an individual describing being attacked by enemies or poverty or sickness, or with the communal or national lament, it could be Israel complaining about being beaten in battle or suffering from a plague or a drought. Well, our hymn books don't have so many of that type of uh, song and that's possibly because of the difference Jesus has made in our situation. And also, we don't live in a theocracy. They lived in a special relationship with God and they could appeal to him on the basis of a covenant. Well, nationally, we can't do that at all. After the whinging in these lament psalms, there's usually either a cry to God for help or some affirmation of faith that God will eventually do something about the situation. We're going to have a little look at a part of one of these individual lament psalms. This is Psalm 38. My wounds fester and are loathsome because of my sinful folly. I'm bowed down and brought very low. All day long I go about mourning. My back is filled with searing pain. There's no health in my body. I am feeble and utterly crushed. I groan in anguish of heart. All my longings lie open before the Lord. My sighing is not hidden from you. My heart pounds, my strength fails me. Even the light has gone from my eyes. My friends and companions avoid me because of my wounds. My neighbours stay far away. Those who want to kill me set their traps. Those who would harm me talk of my ruin. All day long they scheme and lie. I'm like the deaf who cannot hear. I'm like the mute who cannot speak. I've become like one who does not hear, whose mouth can offer no reply. Lord, I wait for you. You will answer, Lord my God. Did you notice the two elements there? That Most of it uh, was complaining, moaning about how difficult life is. And then just in the last verse, you have this statement of trust. He's expecting that God will answer. Another common element in these lament psalms is either a protesting of the psalmist's innocence, either saying he 
he doesn't deserve what's happening to him, or in some cases, a confession of his sins and recognition that that's uh, perhaps why he was in the state he was in. Well, let's have a look at a communal lament. This is the nation of Israel um, singing about uh, what has happened, obviously, after the Babylonians have um, invaded Jerusalem. Oh God, the nations have invaded your inheritance. They have defiled your holy temple. They have reduced Jerusalem to rubble. They have left the dead bodies of your servants as food for the birds of the sky, the flesh of your own people for the animals of the wild. They have poured out blood like water all around Jerusalem and there is no one to bury the dead. We are objects of contempt to our neighbours, of scorn and derision to those around us. Why should the nations say, where is their God? So you've got this national complaint to God about him allowing Jerusalem to be overrun and destroyed. But again, the conclusion is much more positive. Verse 13 says this, Then we, your people, the sheep of your pasture, will praise you forever from generation to generation. We will proclaim your praise. The Lament Psalms mightn't mean much to us at present, but I can assure you that our brothers and sisters suffering persecution identify very strongly with this type of psalm and they draw great comfort from the affirmations of trust in God that come at the end of these a lot of the time. Well, the second largest group of psalms are hymns of praise to God. And we can summarise the themes of these as his greatness and his goodness or his glory uh, because of his creation and his control of nature and his glory because of his redeeming activity. And these two themes are the same as ours also. We praise God for what he's done in creation, for his power and might, but also for the wonder of what he has done in relating to us. Some of the Psalms focus on just one aspect of God. For example, Psalm 104 focuses almost entirely on God's work in creation and maintaining the universe. This is the first few verses of Psalm 104. Praise the Lord, my soul. Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendour and majesty. The Lord wraps himself in light as with a garment. He stretches out the heavens like a tent and lays the beams of his upper chambers on their waters. He makes the clouds his chariot and rides on the wings of the wind. He makes winds his messengers, flames of fire his servant. And the whole psalm goes on to talk about different aspects of God uh, working with nature. The previous psalm, number 103, is much better known because it talks about God's benefits to us, all that God has done for us. And it says this, Praise the Lord, my soul, all my inmost being. Praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion, who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. There's nothing in this one about um, God's might and creation, but lots about what God has done for the individual who's writing it. A popular theme in these songs of praise whoops, is God being praised as the king of the world. And Psalm 93 is one of these. 
It starts off saying the Lord reigns. In some translations, it's the Lord is king. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed in majesty and armed with strength. Indeed, the world is established firm and secure. Your throne was established long ago. You are from all eternity. The seas have lifted up, Lord. The seas have lifted up their voice. The seas have lifted up their pounding waves. Mightier than the thunder of the great waters, mightier than the breakers of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. And sometimes God's glory is being praised quite indirectly by talking about the temple or even about Jerusalem itself. And Psalm 48 is a good example of that. The first few verses say this, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth. Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. Within her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. There's a sort of a mythology about um, Jerusalem in the Psalms. They talk about the Temple Mountain as being the highest mountain in the land, which of course it isn't, but uh, in, their, in the writers' minds, uh, God is all important and his temple and his city are all important as well. Many of these psalms uh, focus on a, a personal testimony and Psalm 73 is one of those. In Psalm 73, the writer recounts how he'd almost lost his face, his faith, sorry, looking at how wicked people seemed to prosper. And then after going into the temple and thinking about his God, he remembered the fate of the wicked and he says this, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel and afterwards you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. So this is the psalmist giving a testimony to how he almost lost his faith, but it's been restored by remembering uh, what happens to the wicked compared with what will happen to him. There's quite a, a lot of overlap between the psalms of praise and psalms of confidence in God. Psalm 23 is perhaps a classic example of this um, psalm of confidence type, and we're going to be hearing more about that in a fortnight. David praises God, expressing his absolute confidence in God to care for him always. We'll just read a, a few of the verses in it. The Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his namesake. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord Forever. And as you read through the Psalms, you'll find there's a number of other Psalms of confidence where the Psalmist just expresses his trust and his certainty that God will look after him. Another group uh, is called the Royal Psalms. In these, the relationship between the King of Israel and God is all important. Psalm 2 is an example. We're going to read some verses from that. Psalm 110, obviously, is also one of these. 
In Psalm 2, uh, the psalmist talks about the nations rebelling against God and he then says in verses 4 to 9, The one enthroned in heaven laughs, the Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. Then we have the king talking, I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son, today I have become your father. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron, you will dash them to pieces like pottery. Well, beyond these types we've looked at, there are some other minor types, such as entrance liturgy psalms, Psalms 15 and 24, and they seem to have been involved in some sort of procession into the temple. Uh, you remember Psalm 24 talks about who can, go, who can ascend to the hill of the Lord, who's, who's entitled to go there? A person of pure heart can do so. <clears throat> There's a few wisdom psalms, Psalm 1 is one of those. Remember, Psalm 1 talks about uh, the blessings of the person who does what's right and the woes to someone who uh, does the wrong things. So they're a little bit like the poetry you get in Proverbs. They talk about the wise life is the life living the way God wants us to. Psalm 37 is one of these and 49 and 119 is like this also, although it's different because it's, it also is written as a personal testimony. But it's a very special psalm in the way it's been structured. There's 22 stanzas of eight verses each. It's the longest psalm by far, 176 verses. That's longer than the first 17 psalms put together. But in each of those stanzas, each verse of the eight starts with one letter of the Hebrew alphabet and the whole Hebrew alphabet is covered in these uh, 22 uh, stanzas. And it's all about the word of God and how um, the psalmist loves it, how by following it he finds his life works and so on. Psalms is quoted more frequently in the New Testament than any other book in the Old Testament. There are 79 direct quotes from the Psalms and 333 allusions to lines in the Psalms. One of the reasons for this is the number of psalms which contain a prophetic element. Psalms like Psalm 22 and Psalm 69 graphically describe the sort of suffering that Jesus was going to experience. Psalms 2 and 110 clearly speak about Jesus' kingship. Psalm 16 predicts his resurrection. And Jesus' last saying on the cross, into your hands I commit my spirit, it's a quote from Psalm 31 verse 5. And scholars have identified 92 statements in the Psalms that are fulfilled in the coming of Jesus and his, his earthly life. There is one particularly disturbing element in a few of the Psalms. When the psalmist calls down curses on their enemies, or in the case of Psalm 37, he says that a Jew would be happy if he could bash Babylonian babies' heads on rocks. What are we to make of that sort of talk? 
Well, first of all, we mustn't assume that God approves of such talk. Jews can be just as sinful as their enemies, and although wanting God's enemies to be destroyed might be a good wish, daydreaming about acts of brutality is not appropriate. Secondly, we need to remember that these people were living in very different times from what we have experienced. The Babylonians were more like living under ISIS in Syria than uh, any sort of European army in the, the modern day, and the brutality breeds hatred and the Jews came to hate these Babylonians. Waiting, want, sorry, wanting God to bring justice to the world is a very good attitude, but hoping to participate in slaughter is quite different. So these psalms are there because God wants them there, but that doesn't mean that every attitude expressed by the psalmist is appropriate. Well, now that we've had a brief overview of the psalms, it's time to look at Hebrew poetry for a bit. When I was at school, poetry in English was based on rhythm and rhyme. We've all got a good idea of what rhyme is, but perhaps not so much about rhythm. Rhythm refers to the number of syllables in the lines and which ones are stressed. For example, in the song Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound, we've got eight syllables, with every second one being stressed there. The second line, six syllables, with every second syllable stressed. Similarly with the third, eight again, and then six in line four. And you'll notice that the first syllable in each line is not stressed, the second one is, and so on. Now, that doesn't just happen. Poets have to work at that sort of thing, right? In the old days, poets actually thought that some work was involved rather than just writing down the first things that come into their mind. Let's have a look at another one. Uh, if you have a look in the back of your hymn book, you'll see sometimes these metrical indexes and you can find different tunes to fit if they meet this 8-6 metre or 8-7-8-7. This Love Divine or Love's Excelling has got eight syllables in the first line, but the accented syllables are the first ones, not the second ones. Similarly, in uh, the second, third and fourth lines, only here we've got seven syllables in the second and fourth line. So this is an 8787 hymn and it's repeated in the second half of the verse in that case. Well, in the last 50 years, rhyme and rhythm have gone by the board and all sorts of writing in English are being classed as poetry. And when poetry is based on rhythm and rhyme, a lot of the artistry is lost when you translate it into other languages. But the great thing about Hebrew poetry is that the most important characteristic of it is parallelism. The repetition or rhyming of ideas in different words. So it's instead of trying to make words sound the same, it's the ideas that are the same. And we have this in lots of uh, the Psalms. Let me show you what I mean by parallelism. In Psalm 19 verse 1 it says this, The heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands. You can see there that heavens and skies are basically the same thing in different words. Declare and proclaim are the same thing in different words. And the glory of God in line one, we're told in verse two, in, sorry, in the second line, what that is. The work of his hands. In other words, if you look at the universe, you can see God's glory in his creation. And those things are parallel. 
Let's look at Psalm 21, verses 1 and 2. The king rejoices in your strength, Lord. How great is his joy in the victories you give. You have granted him his heart's desire and have not withheld the request of his lips. Now, we've actually got two different types of parallelism uh, in these couple of verses. In the first one, uh, you've got direct parallelism, complete parallelism, if you like. The king rejoices in your strength, Lord. How great is his joy in the victories you give. They're talking about exactly the same thing and they're both positive statements. But in verse 2, you've granted him his heart's desire and have not withheld the request of his lips. The second line there is a negative version, you have not withheld, but it's virtually saying the same thing as the line before. God's answered his prayer. That's what uh, he means with both lines. You've granted him his heart's desire and you've given him the request of his lips. But the second one is a negative, which makes that antithetic parallelism, the antithesis. It's a negative but still making the same point. Often uh, one new element is introduced in the second statement and that leads into the next statements in the psalm. And we'll see that in Psalm 88, verses 3 and 4. He says, I am overwhelmed with troubles and my life draws near to death. I'm counted among those who go down to the pit. I'm like one without strength. In verse 3, the second statement goes beyond mere troubles to talk about death. And the idea of being among the dying is then used again at the beginning of verse 4. Now this characteristic of parallelism has been in Hebrew poetry right from the time of Jacob. In Genesis 49, Jacob uh, prophesies what's going to happen in the future to all his sons. And you'll find this parallelism in a number of the statements he makes there in Genesis 49 and it carries right through to Mary's song nearly 2,000 years later in the Magnificat. You remember the first two lines, my soul magnifies the Lord, my spirit rejoices in God my Saviour. That again is an example of parallelism. Rhythm was also an important element in Hebrew poetry but it is completely lost in translation. So reading it in English, we are missing out on some of the beauty of the Psalms, uh, but God has very wisely made parallelism the most significant feature of Hebrew poetry and it works in any languages. What are some of the things we can expect to learn as we read through the Psalms? Well, the first thing is that God deserves to be praised. There's two main reasons for this. We've already mentioned he's great and he is good. Or put it another way, he, he has shown us his power in and over creation and he's acted in history to save his people. He continually does that. The second thing we can learn from the Psalms is that we can be totally honest with God. The psalm writers tell God exactly how disappointed they feel when he has left them in some awful situation. For example, here's a psalmist saying, For I eat ashes as my food and mingle my drink with tears because of your great wrath, for you have taken me up and thrown me aside. He's actually saying that God's picked him up and thrown him away. We can be honest with God and... Um, Obviously, there's uh, 
there's points where we shouldn't be rude about God, but uh, we should certainly express how we feel to God. The third thing we can learn as we read the Psalms is that God is faithful. He is always worthy of our trust. Even when it appears that he's forgotten us, it'll turn out that he has had our welfare in mind all the time, but his plans are much bigger than we can understand. Often in the Psalms, we're getting what Wordsworth described poetry as. Wordsworth said, Poetry is the spontaneous overflow of powerful feelings. It takes its origin from emotion recollected in tranquility. Quite often in a psalm, the psalmist will be reliving quite graphically some event or period when things were going terribly wrong. But then he reports that God has turned up and changed the situation completely. And the result is praise to a great God. Well, let's just have a look at an example of this sort of thing in Psalm 13. How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. And my enemy will say, I have overcome him. And my foes will rejoice when I fall. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise, for he has been good to me. Three distinct parts to that psalm. The first two, you've got this complaint about how long, why, why is God not doing anything about this? Then verses 3 and 4, he starts this appeal to God for action. Look on me and answer, he says in verse 3. And then in verses 5 and 6, we get back to faith. He expresses his trust. He knows that God will not fail him. God does rescue. And as a result of that, there is praise. I was finished working on this talk yesterday, but this morning, reading through some Psalms, I came across what I thought was the best summary of the whole book that I've seen, and it's in Psalm 63, verse 3. Uh, the NIV not quite the same as the ESV. In the ESV, it says this, Because your steadfast love is better than life, my, my lips will praise you. And I think that is a, a good summary of the whole book of Psalms. We discover in that that God's love is the greatest thing uh, we can experience, we can know, and because of that, we respond with praise, and that's how these songs came about. Can I ask that you get into the Psalms in the next few weeks? Um, as I said, we've got a missionary speaker next week, but after that we'll be looking at several of the Psalms. A lot of them are short, and you can probably get right through the 150 uh, by Christmas. That'd be good. It's not that funny. I've read, I've, I've read 76 before breakfast this week, starting Tuesday. So they're not that long. Um, as you read them, notice how constantly we are being reminded of God's faithful love. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this songbook of the, the Jews that you've preserved for us. We thank you for the themes which are the same as the, the themes of our songs of praise, that you are great 
and you are good. You have made an incredible universe that we cannot begin to understand, but you have also acted in our individual lives. You've sent Jesus to die for each of us, and we are so grateful for that. Help us as we read these psalms to appreciate you more and to want to offer our own praise to you for all that you have done for us. So bless us now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>